Welcome to the Writer's Right podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and the writing process. Today's guest is writer-at-large for Bleacher Report, uh, one of the best sports storytellers working, and a fellow literary junkie. It's Mirren Fader. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Really good. Um, the sun's finally starting to come out here. It's been raining all day. Um, what's the weather like in Oakland? It is actually kind of um, kind of dim as well. Um, I left sunny LA and it's a little cold here, but my cold is probably not your cold. My cold is like 65 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not it's actually not too bad. It was really hot here yesterday, so it's it's a little cooler now. But um, it was like like pushing 35 here yesterday, so that was kind of wild. Okay, so I have no reason to complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little sticky, a little hot. Um, yeah, so uh, I brought you on to talk about uh, your piece of drop today for Bleacher Report called uh, Nate Robinson um, Battles Inner Demons in Quest for NBA Return. Um, and this was fascinating. I had no idea what your piece was going to be. I was really excited to see what it was when it came out. And um, Nate Robinson is really interesting because he's one of the guys that when I was younger, he's one of the guys that I first saw like do crazy stuff like basically i saw lebron james is the reason i fell in love with basketball so like watching him do like crazy tomahawk dunks and dunking over you know four celtics and uh nate robinson doing similar things but like half his size (laughs) i know he's he's an incredible athlete i mean you know i the, the play that really stands out to me um, that somebody mentioned to me during the reporting process was, I think it was Steve Blake that crossed him over pretty badly and Nate like rolled over like you do when you're trying to like rid yourself of, of flames and like a burn victim. And then all of a sudden, two seconds later, he was already, he popped up and he sprinted and he was already at the end of the court, the other end, and he stopped Steve Blake from penetrating to the basket. So I'm, I'm just like the speed, the athleticism, the power, the strength, he, he kind of had all of it when it comes to physicality. Yeah, and even in your piece, I think it was Doc Rivers who mentioned that pound for pound, he might be like one of the greatest athletes he's ever seen. Um, you you know, it's hard to appreciate it when you look at his size, especially for me, like talking to him in person, you you really fail to remember that he is small, you know, he yeah. he's not a tall person, and so it's kind of miraculous, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, even the dunk contest where he dunked over Dwight Howard uh, as Cryptonate, which is still one of my favorite yeah. things, what a great nickname, Um and like I like I'm standing like I if I stand up I'm six three, um, and I just like I couldn't believe like in my head I'm like this guy could clear me like maybe he he'd just be standing still almost he could probably just clear me just jumping up like I couldn't believe like that that just that kind of athleticism in uh, such a small guy because even in the in the piece like Doc Rivers says yeah he's you don't usually get the power to go along with the small stature. Um, yeah, and I think that made him so beloved too. And I think that's why a lot of people were curious. You know, where did Nate go? Why isn't he in the NBA? And yeah. you know, I t- I too sort of had those questions because I remember the athleticism, and so you know, it, I kind of had the same curiosity that other people did. Yeah, and it's it's neat too because like the, the first thing I know I saw or I thought of I guess when I saw your piece was Nate Robinson in uh, I think it was Game Four. In 2013, is that right, or 2015, one of those years I'm getting mixed up in my head, but when he was on the Bulls and the triple overtime game, and he just went off, and the fascinating part that I had no idea about, and a lot of people didn't, um, that your piece illuminates is the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, like with uh, Tom Thibodeau and stuff, and like, you're watching that, and you're like, okay, well, this guy's, he's going to be around for a while still, and that's one of the last times I remember really thinking, like, Nate Robinson is here and he's and he's amazing, you know. Um and but there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes that not a lot of people know about. I mean, I think that's the the role of a feature and I think that that's why it's so important to not assume that just because things are going well for somebody doesn't mean that they're not going through things inside and like I too was surprised, mm-hmm. you know, I thought that was that arguably that was the height of his career. Um, you know, for him to win as many games for them as he did single-handedly, you know, um, he talked about it with me. He's like, you know, I thought I was going to retire in Chicago. I had fantasized about it. You know, I think, um, smaller players like him, you know, they're looking for a home. They're not just looking for like a team that allows them to play in their system and score and 
do they play up tempo how I like it? It's more like they're looking for respect. They're looking for a coach that can finally accept them and give them a home. And he was very much looking for that. And I think, um, it gave him, it kind of sent him into a depression as he said that he was not able to reconcile his inner demons and it wasn't working out. And I think at the time that he went to therapy, therapy was not, something discussed out loud, like in the NBA now, you know, Mm -hmm. with DeRozan and Love, it wasn't, it was still pretty taboo. And so I think for him to kind of come out years later and discuss it, maybe it'll help people too, to understand that, you know, uh, mental health is a serious issue in the NBA and it affects everyone, even those people that seem so happy and so, you know, bouncy like Nate was. Yeah. And it's interesting that, um, you know, especially with the mental health, the, the, how it got to a point where, you know, it, it came about because he was being asked to be someone he's not, um, which I thought was a really interesting way to look at the beast. And, and it's interesting as well how how he decided to tackle that. Um, and he seems like the kind of person that he wants to do whatever he can do to get to wants, where he wants to be. Really, really driven. Um, and so when he was told that he needed to do that, he was trying to figure it out. But... Um, because his personality isn't naturally that, it became extremely difficult. And he mentions it like as if like a, it's a dark side almost. Um, and that dark side to me seems to be like the side of him that's an, an entertainer, an attention seeker, um, like this release valve for pent up energy. Um, is that sort of is that sort of what that's like? Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. I think um, for him, the two sides that pull at him, the dark and the light, the angel and the devil, it's it's basically like, you know, the Nate that's fun and entertaining and exciting. And then the Nate that needs to be a little more conservative, um, you know, a little more calm, a little more quiet. And um, the hardest thing for him is, you know, imagine if you're one way your whole life, you actually defeat the odds and succeed by being that way your whole life. And then you finally get your dream and you get there and they're like, actually, that's not how this thing works. Um, you're being disruptive, you're immature. And so, you know, for us, um, or not us, but just people in general, you might look at his story and say, well, can't you just be quiet? It's not hard. Like you have a job in a corporate place. You have to wear your corporate uniform. You have to be quiet. You can't be texting in the, in the meetings, but you know, for him, that was his struggle. That was Nate's struggle. And he felt like his energy and his charisma, which made his personality so beloved to fans, made him so great on the court. And so he kind of talked to me a bit like he sounded like an artist that feels kind of like stifled from creating his true art. Mm Mm-hmm. And so his struggle was just like, how am I to abandon this thing that I feel made me great? But then you get to the middle of the road, you get to Chicago, like you just mentioned in therapy, and you realize like the thing that made your art great has outlived its youthfulness. And now you're you're without a home. You know, you love basketball and you don't have the space to house that passion anymore. So what do you do? Do you admit what you've done? Do you take responsibility? Or do you just keep, you know, pointing the finger at other people? And I think the central tension in my piece is that it's a little bit of both. Yeah. The, those two parts of him are interesting. Um, and he talks about, uh, saying that he thinks they're inseparable or at least thought they were inseparable. And to, he thought that to play at a high level, he needed both of them. Um, and it's, and it's interesting cause like this isn't necessarily something we haven't never seen. I mean, um, I think of one of the most obvious examples is, uh, LeBron in Miami that first okay. year, um, where he was, he decided to, he was going to embrace this role uh, as a villain, and he'd never really played that way. He'd always been a really happy guy, and people used to say that, you know, if LeBron's dancing before games, you're in trouble, um, just because that's how he is. And, you know, he went through that whole year of uh, being under the scope, and all this stuff happened. Obviously, they lost to the Mavericks and all that, and he came back the next year and said, you know what, I gotta, I gotta be myself. I'm going back to playing the way I play, and, it, and it, I think it was ultimately a good lesson for him that he ended up overcoming, and it seems kind of similar for Nate Robinson that, you know, if he, he doesn't indulge at least some of that about himself, then he just can't get to the place he's usually getting to because he's sort of stifling, like you said, just stifling his own creativity and, um, forcing himself to sort of paint with his fingers instead of maybe with a brush, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really um, fruitful comparison, an interesting way to think about it. I think when I listened to him talk, I, it's to me it seemed like somebody who um, really made an effort, though, to try to change. 
I, I really, yeah. I think that surprised me the most about the piece is that, yes, Nate believes he's misunderstood and they wronged him and they, you know, misunderstood how I was, as he told me. But there was a real sincere effort to change, whether he agreed with it or even really understood it is unclear. I think from some of his quotes, you can still kind of tell that he is still grappling with, you know, why should I have to change when these other younger kids aren't changing? And why did I need to do this? But I think at the heart, is a genuine person that genuinely did not understand what was going wrong and how he could change it. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of the responses I've been getting is like, wow, like, you know, dude really tried to, um, you know, change things and change mm-hmm. his work habits. And that section about him, you know, mimicking Ray Allen around and, yeah. you know, trying to be quiet in the front of the plane. And I think that, um, he seemed to Alvin Gentry, at least when I talked to him said that Nate tried like crazy to do everything that was asked of him. So, you know, maybe in his latter years, he really understood it and he picked it up, but maybe it was too late, you know? So I think I kind of caught Nate at an interesting time, you know, introspection is great, but how can you physically change things? You can't go back. You can only go forward what happens next. And so, you know, I didn't catch him at the time if he does get his break, but I think the in-between is more interesting. Yeah, it's really difficult with like the role narratives play, especially in sports. Um, things like uh, Nate Robinson's being um, difficult uh, behind the scenes. Uh, like a lot of players will get some narrative like that that just sticks with them, even though that's not really how real life works. Like you know, people things change and people can grow and learn, and um, these narratives don't always fit anymore. Um, like Kyle Lowry in Toronto before he got here, he was always known as um, a coach killer. <clears throat> and in, he ended up forming a great relationship with Dwayne Casey, and from almost all of his time here, he's never been an issue, um, you know, in, in behind the scenes with the coaches and stuff anymore. Um, but I, but that's one of the things about the NBA, and one of the things I always talk about um, with coaching that I think is underrated and people don't talk about enough is, um, like, part of being an NBA coach is uh, learning to, to deal with people and... Um, how to talk with different personalities and how to get the best out of them. And if you get a good group of people to buy into what you're trying to sell, that's that's a pretty big deal. And one of the parts that of your piece that uh, interested me the most and you know pulled up the heartstrings a little bit was the story with uh, Larry Brown. Um, you know, when Nate Robinson went to see him and he uh, kind of called him out and then called him out in front of his team and, and it was very harsh on someone who seems to be a very emotional person who kind of um, you know, wears his heart on his sleeve and is always trying to do his best. And, um, you know, it, it just, it, it seems like he's had a lot of experiences like this where, uh, especially just in the NBA, where he hasn't met uh, the people who are willing to say, you know, um, we need to be able to do both. We need to be able to rein you in a little bit or and let you go, you know, you have a certain extent to which you can um, be yourself on the floor, but also, um, you know, you can't suppress all of it um, you know, you have to be able to, to have that outlet at least somewhat. And striking that balance never seems to uh, be a thing that he found just amongst his uh, his years in the NBA. Well, I, I really liked what you said earlier about being allowed to evolve and being allowed to grow. And I think that's that's such a theme in the article, too. And, and you know, this will tie into the Larry Brown um, section that you're talking about, because I really think that a lot of Nate's antics happened so much earlier in his career. And I think when talking to Larry Brown about that, I was surprised that Larry kind of had the um, hindsight to look back and say, you know, maybe we didn't do enough. He was a young player. And a lot of these young guys get put in these situations. You know, people forget those Knicks were so bad. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the most dysfunctional <laughs> teams in, in franchise history, you know. And, yes, he had Malik Rose, who was a great, um, like, mentor figure. But, you know, it was a lot of young guys just like him on that team. And, um, you know, we we know so much about what happened in the toxic relationship between Nate and Larry, right? Like we know, and, and D'Antoni as well, like we know Nate mm-hmm. got benched. We know all these things, but I wanted to offer new things that people didn't know about. And that's why I think people are complex. If we go back to the angel-devil dichotomy, you know, Nate was not just the distraction, the immature guy that clogged up the showers. That did happen, and and that was not good. But he is also, um, you know, a person that wants respect and deserves respect as a human and, um, you know, told his coach, like, do not call me the little shit and actually shared that he cried. And so um, Nate 
Nate even admitting that and processing that I feel like is, is part of his growth, you know, and, um, he, he has four kids. He's, he's done a lot of thinking and growing and evolving and, you know, in, in his view, what he's told me kids change you. And so I just really wanted to show the process of Nate changing. And I don't like stories that put a bow on the end and say, he's changed. He's great. Redemption over, you know, it's more just like, maybe he will get another shot. Maybe he's changed enough. Maybe he won't, but at least we can give readers a look of what that evolution looks like, feels like, sounds like. Yeah. And you mentioned the part with his kids. Um, I thought that was really interesting too, about how he does a lot of the same stuff with them as he did um, when he was growing up. And um, he's very, again, just reinforced the idea that about how, how driven he is and that he wants his kids to be set on the right path and stuff. But it's not like, um, you know, you also include this stuff about how he loves to get them treats and things like that. Like he's not um, just, you know, an iron fisted kind of dad. Um, but he's got, you know, both, both sides of, you know, I, I really wanted to set my kids on the right path. So we're going to, you know, be strict in certain things. And, um, but at the same time, like they're allowed to have fun and all this stuff. And it's, it's almost that same sort of, um, push that he seems to be, he's giving himself as he sort of tries to work his way back to, um, playing in the NBA as he evidently still seems to really want to do. Well, and I really wanted to, I definitely did want to include the kids for those reasons that you outlined, but I think the, the ending anecdote as part of that section, um, when Namir was 45 minutes late to practice, I thought it was so fascinating the way Nate scolded him and made him and his little brother run in in front of everyone on the track and said, like, your coaches are devoted to you. You have to be devoted to them. And that to me, I put that where that was in the story. And I included that because I wanted it to show that like you have to have evolved somewhat in order to have that perspective to tell your son that, right? Because Nate's reputation is doesn't get along with coaches, doesn't, you know, doesn't fit into systems. Coaches don't like him. He's distracting. And so for him to say like, you have to treat your coaches with respect and be devoted and be on time. I think that really showed the evolution of him, you know? Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I, re- I I like that a lot. Um, that definitely thought of that exact thing when uh, that you're mentioning um, when I read it. Um, and the other thing too that I thought was interesting was the him mentioning about how if he played in like um, today's NBA as a, like as a youngster, I guess if he came in today, he'd be viewed a lot differently because we live in the social media age. And uh, I thought that was interesting because um, I think he's at least partly right. Um, cause people do love fans mostly really do love, um, athletes like, like Embiid, for example, who comes on Twitter and he tweets funny things and people love it. And, you know, he's celebrated by fans for that fact. Um, but it's one of those things too, that's like, it's all well and good to an extent. Um, you know, you also get, uh, you know, just berated for certain things that you do online. Uh, if you do that, you get caught online for, you know, um, if he, if he was doing, you know, making fun of his coach behind his back, that might be you know, a lot of people think that's funny. And then there would be that section of people who also say like, well, what is he doing? Is he being super disrespectful? Like, you know, he might be a problem in the locker room, this kind of thing. So I think it's interesting to like how he looks at it and how it might actually be if he was in the NBA as a youngster now. Yeah. I thought that section was interesting too, just in the sense of, you know, I kind of see his point. Um, but then again, like you said, you know, it's not just that you play video games or that you're funny. It's, it's, being serious in practice and not imitating your coaches behind their back and not, you know, clogging up the showers and stuff. So I do think there's a fine line to walk between it. Um, the best players know how to use their personality to their advantage, um, market themselves socially, but at the same time, when it comes to the game, um, you know, keep that separate. But again, I think that's the central tension of Nate, like that what made him so, electric and bouncy on the court was kind of that in your face loud you know charismatic personality and I just I don't think he knew how to separate them and I don't know how he will negotiate the two if he does get his chance but I definitely think he's more aware of it than he might have been in his earlier years I definitely think he's stepped back and had time to think about it for sure yeah even his um just his like general bounciness and bubbliness was uh it was like really on display when he was um I think it was during the uh Utah Houston series he was like guest commentating kind of 
Yeah. Um, yeah, he was, and his, it was interesting because I, I'd never, I don't know if he'd ever done it before actually, but he was on and he sounded almost like, um, like a fan almost when he was watching the way he was describing the game. And I, I just found it different and really interesting. And I had to think about it because I was so used to, I'm supposed to be hearing, um, something else, but it was so, after reading your piece, it, it seems so much like him. Like that's the way he is. He's like, so just, um, you know, expressive and uh, reactionary and um, just excited about things that are happening, um, full of energy, that kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. And I really wanted the dialogue to come through to, you know, not have my voice as much, but I really wanted his voice to shine. I really wanted, you know, the fact that Fisticuffs is in my story (laughs) (laughs) is amazing. And um, I really wanted to capture his personality. But it's funny you say that because, so the the way that this story started, I actually pitched it last year and it was a no-go when he was in the D-League. But um, when I found out he was in the big three, I pitched it again and the big three had their combine in LA earlier this year. And, um, Nate had just done that broadcast, um, where he was like practically squealing, right? Like he was just wanting, he was so genuinely wanted to be on the court. Somebody dunked over Nick Young or something. I can't remember the play, but he was just squealing. And so that was the first thing I asked him. I was like, I just walked up to him and I was like, Hey, you know, I write for Bleacher Report. I'm interested in profiling you. Um, gotta ask, listen to that game. How badly did you want to be out there? And he was like, man, I wish I could go out there. I wish I could be there. And so that's kind of how we actually started. Um, And he kept like looking at the court and not at me because there were games going on. And every time somebody would do something really cool, he would kind of like scream, (laughs) just like the broadcast. (laughs) So at that point, I felt like I was totally getting in his way from just enjoying the game of basketball. So, um, you know, I'm just like, hey, can I get your number? Like, potentially meet up another time I'm really serious about this story and he did and I ended up going to Seattle but yeah I definitely wanted to to play off of that um just that need that craving that he seemed to have to get back on the court that's awesome how plugged in he still seems to be or is for sure when when through stories like that it's um not it's interesting because not uh players who've been out of the league for a little bit uh, you don't always um hear the same thing and when not that they're not wanting to be back on the court but just like the the level to which nate robinson really wants to be playing in the nba just seems so high like it's his all-time goal kind of thing is just to get back and do it again um and prove that he's changed or whatever exactly it is he wants to prove yes and no i just think nate is so expressive he'll just say it out loud like you can feel it like if you're standing next to him you can just feel the passion like oozing from him and you know when i watched his workout he you know if he made a mistake or he missed a shot he'd scream come on nate at himself he was so (laughs) mad at himself and i could just like feel his passion burning and um you know i used to be a basketball player obviously not at the same level as nate but you know i'm five one and i know what that's like to you know be short and you have to play with that kind of energy you have to play with that kind of passion and fire but the thing is everyone wants back in the nba you know one of the questions i kept asking a lot of the nba coaches was um you know making it to the nba is very very hard staying in the nba is very very hard um leaving the nba and trying to come back i believe personally is the hardest of them all Mm -hmm. because um the game does not stay where it was like it doesn't if you're watching a movie it doesn't just pause like your friends in the room keep watching whether you're there or not um and it keeps evolving and it keeps changing and the league is actually getting so very young and Nate is getting so much older. And so, you know, I think, I think it's an uphill battle, but it's not out of the question. I think that was, that was cool to see that coaches who he played for, who maybe, you know, didn't agree with his approach to it all the times, at least respect his game and at least respect um, his abilities and could see him back in the league if he changes his, um, his approach a bit. Yeah, that was exciting too. I like that actually that they were all kind of advocating that he could do it if he wanted to was kind of what they seemed to be saying, which was um, which was really cool. Uh, so one of the other things that really stuck out to me out of your piece was just the, um, <laughs> I don't know why, but I, it's so funny to me, the story about when he's in Venezuela and uh, <laughs> that, that guy from the other bench just came charging onto the floor and basically like tackled him to stop him from a fast break. That's bananas. 
I was howling and like I wish you could speak to Nate because he's so he's so funny like he's so animated when he describes things and I just kept saying to him no he didn't jump on the court like are you serious right now and he was like oh don't want to believe me don't want to believe me okay um so he is just he's so funny and I actually believe it because you know having gone to Lithuania to watch some overseas basketball anything can happen you know like these people these refs they don't always call everything i believe it but um i thought it was funny because even though he was mature and he was like i'm not gonna fight back i'm not gonna fight back yeah. at the end he's just like but i'm still nate robinson and so it was that little you know thing at the end where it's like all right well i don't know how much he's he's going to change but i know he's gonna stay true to himself whatever that means yeah that that's just that's crazy i can't i couldn't imagine it's so weird to me i can't i just can't even fathom it like that'd be so weird if that had happened in the nba it'd be like the biggest story of the year potentially like that's so weird um yeah so uh the other other thing i wanted to mention about just like the ending is um i love that he uh cites dr seuss by the way that's that's (laughs) and peter pan and peter pan yeah that's fantastic Um, and spider-man and spider-man yeah and venom yeah i thought about the venom one that was an interesting uh (laughs) comparison and he's so genuine you you know it's 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 not an act he genuinely you know that's that's nate's soul you know that's who he is (laughs) that's yeah i loved it a lot um dr seuss he's an underrated poet um (laughs) i love that he he kind of closes with um the, the conclusion is sort of this that it seems like nate robinson's kind of um settling on this idea of being himself um, and, you know, kind of accepting, accepting who he is, but not that that doesn't mean he can't continue to grow and learn, um, but that it's okay to be who he is and not, you know, have to go through like some total colossal change of just switching his identity around to becoming like a, some kind of serious stoic, um, identity that he just isn't his, which I, from, you know, reading the piece and then getting to that point is really, really reassuring because you're reading this and you really don't want him to, um, you know, become that person. You, you still want him to beat Nate Robinson because there are some things that are bigger than basketball and who you are, um, is, you know, that's a huge thing. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the answer lies somewhere in the gray. I think it's more along the lines of what Gary Payton told me, which is you mm-hmm. got to change a little bit. You know, yeah. you don't have to change all the way, but there are some rules. And if he wants to go back in, he'll have to adjust a bit. And I think he it'll be up to him to strike that balance of when to, you know, have it be more pronounced, when to tone it back. Um, you know, maybe he'll be able to do that. And I think um, so many teammates love him for his personality. I actually think Nate could be a great veteran on a team. I really would like to see him in a role where he's coming off the bench for a young, exciting point guard, um, who I don't know, but I do think he has a lot to offer. I do think he's been around the bend and he can understand and say, look, like this is what I did. And he actually did say that to me. That didn't make the piece. It just didn't really seem to have a place, but mm-hmm. he was very keen on showing the next generation, like, Hey, I went through this when I I was a really, really, really young player, and I was just so excited to be on Sports Center. I was just throwing <laughs> shit off the backboard because. Um, so I do think he he could play that role, but it has to be the perfect um, the perfect fit. It's like you got, it's it's basically like if you're trying to win the game at the end, everything has to go right. You got to make your free throws. You got to make the perfect crisp passes. Everything has to be in line. The coach has to um, wholeheartedly want to give you the next chance. There has to be the money has to be right on teams. Um, you know, he has to find a situation where they really value his up and down contributions, maybe, you know, um, compensate a bit on defense for the screen stuff. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. I, I'm rooting for him really badly now to get back in the NBA in some fashion. I think that'd be great. I think he really could. Yeah. Like you said, mentor, um, a younger point guard, that would be, that'd be really cool. Um, just to see him get to that point again and kind of complete one of his goals. Um, so one of the other main things I like to do with this podcast in particular is uh, talk about writing in general, but also like, you know, the writing of um, the type of piece that uh, my guest has written and um, kind of the process to uh, completion and, and just in general, but you know, how it affects different people and stuff like that. So um, this type of article in particular is my favorite type of sports 
uh, related writing just because it's storytelling at its best, but like mixed with sports, which I love. So um, the things like, you know, are like story arcs and the way certain writers choose to depict things and the stories that are within the stories. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I love. So this kind of piece is um, tailor made for people like me. Uh, so, but why choose to uh, do these kinds of pieces? Are these the kinds of pieces that like really just excite you more than any other kind of um, writing related to any sport? Or um, I, I, I don't know how much uh, like just there's a lot of like just uh, analytical pieces out there. I don't know how much of that you delve into, or if, if at all. But uh, why 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 these kind of pieces? Yeah, well, I'm I'm very similar to you. Um, what you said earlier too. I'm definitely a literary junkie for sure. Um, proud English major for life. Um, <laughs> yeah, <same>. So, <laughs> yes, it's the best major. And um, <laughs> you know, I just that's that's kind of who I am and, and my interests are. Um, although I used to be an athlete, I used to be a basketball player. Mm -hmm. um, very much passionate about reading and writing and long form. And you know, my eventual goal is to write books. So I think for me, the uh. the best path for that is to write features and kind of get that three to 5,000 um, word sweet spot um, perfected. And it's it's just a constant journey that I'm, I'm working on to get better. But I love features so much and I love sports storytelling because um, as an athlete, when everything was about the analytical part, the detail about who's injured and what play are we running and, okay, this person scored 15 points, you know, when you do that for over a decade of your life and you dedicate really um, every waking moment to the game of basketball, um, when it's over, you, you kind of don't want to deal with that anymore. At least for me, I wasn't interested in that anymore. I wanted to learn more about the interior of an athlete. And I, I know what it feels like to be an athlete. And I want to take that to my stories and um, write more about what a person is like. Cause I think when everyone always says, leave your, leave your drama at the door. Like all my coaches used to say that when you walk through these doors, you leave it out there. But the truth is none of us can leave our stuff out there. You hope to for your two hour practice, but who you are encapsulates so much more than what you do on the court or the field. And I just think that's so interesting about how who you are influences what you do on the court. And I believe the court or the field is the perfect place to examine who a person is because, you know, as John Wooden says, sports doesn't build character, it reveals it. I get to see who people are on the court. And I think it just offers readers something really different, really interesting, really fun. And I think that you know, a lot of the reason why fans are able to connect with their favorites is through features. And that's why we see movies, right? We want to see ourselves in these stories. And I, I just like, I think it's very cool to find universal truths within stories. You know, Nate's been to therapy. I've been to therapy. You know, I'm sure many of the readers have been to therapy. So I just think it's really cool to bring more than just like, oh, he's good at basketball because yeah, he is. But if he's, if he's the exceptional, if he's the 0.1% that makes it in basketball, well, our readers are not part of that. They're part of the 99% that didn't make it. So what can we bring that connects readers to these exceptional athletes? Sorry, that was such a long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good because, I mean, that's that's what I like. Like that For me especially, like the, the humanization always in these types of articles um, is one of my favorite things because that that's something that gets lost a lot. In, in sports, um, especially around times like uh, the trade deadline or dra the draft or uh, stuff like that, or the I guess in the offseason in general, like um, a lot of the time players are looked at uh, like assets, like, you know, things to be moved and traded and given contracts and numbers and stats and all this stuff. Um, but they're still people. And, uh, you know, it's pieces like this that remind you that, you know, they are people and that they have their own lives and they have their own struggles and complexities. And there's a lot of things going on, um, for a lot of these athletes and they've, a lot of them have been through a lot, um, and continue to be. So this kind of stuff is, you know, is awesome. Um, I'm also very drawn to doing this type of thing, um, uh, where, you know, you have, you sort of begin with, a your, you know, in terms of the piece, not necessarily like in real life, but like the uh, beginning with an arc and then kind of finding your way to finish the arc. And when you have that full arc for the piece, it's like, it's a really great feeling to know, like, here's where my beginning is and here's where my end is. And then um, just sort of filling it with all this complex stuff that you're getting from your, uh, from your feature target. 
Yeah, you know, every time I finish a story, I never think, oh, that was good or oh, that was, I mean, sometimes I'm like, oh, that was bad. That was bad. <laughs> that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a, think, a writer oh, thing. So, yeah, like I never think like, oh, this is so good. What I What I think is like, Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. The way that turned out, yeah. right? Like you were talking about sections and beginning to end. And hmm. because I am a literary person, I like to start in random places. I like to go back in time. I like to play with structure. I'm really trying to improve, um, transitions, how to move in and out of scenes better, kind of like a movie, kind of like how Wright Thompson does it so effortlessly. Okay. But, um, I definitely, definitely think that, it's interesting the way a story is built. It's usually, it starts out as this, you know, God awful thing. That's just a skeleton. And then it, you hope to, you hope it gets better and then Mm it, it gets somewhat better and then it's somewhat legible. And then, you know, hopefully you get it to something that's, you know, publication ready, but it, it never quite is the most amazing thing you've ever done or that, you know, compares to this person. But what it is, is interesting to watch it take shape. It's like a person, it's like a little human. And then you just don't, you kind of like think about it after, you know, like when Nate was telling me that, um, he cried in front of Larry Brown. That's just, I've really thought about that a lot since it takes a lot for, for men to admit emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, and for an NBA player, a three time slam dunk champion that, had to sort of have a bit of a Napoleon complex in order to be taken seriously, admit that he cried. I I think that really stuck with me. And that's why features are just, they fascinate me because these players are so interesting. You know, I think for whatever reason, athletes get a horrible rep of being dumb or, you know, um, whatever that means. But the truth is they're incredibly complex. They are really complex people that obviously had to overcome a lot in order to beat the odds to get to where they are. So, you know, why not dig deeper than their stats? Yeah, that stuff is really interesting. Like the, the masculinity stuff in sports too, I always find interesting because you don't want to like, um, you know, add to things like toxic masculinity. And that's, of course, just like a, it's, it's a very umbrella term and it means a lot of things. Um, but stuff like, um, you know, that's inherent in sports is very um, like patriarchal and stuff. And um, there's a lot of, because it's, um, you know, a lot of, um, like, uh, there's a lot of, like, aggression in sports, uh, not necessarily just, like, fighting, but, like, you know, you're putting yourself all out there, and there's a lot of competitiveness, and things like, things like dunking, for example, if you dunk over someone, it's, it's, like, a big deal, and people love it, and, um, because it's almost seen as, like, an emasculization of someone else, um, these things are interesting, um, it's just an inherent part of sports that are interesting to look at when to to stick a, take a step back at and look at and you know maybe they're not necessarily harmful but they're still there and interesting to look at so things like Nate Robinson crying and then being able to talk about it um, I agree that's that's like that's a very um, very impressive feat to be able to talk about that just in the open. Well, I'm sure they're shocked when they see me. I'm like a five foot one woman. (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely, for a second, I always get that stare. And sometimes, you know, players have said like, so where's the reporter? Or like, are you you the intern? Oh, no. (laughs) Um, So that, (laughs) I can laugh about it now, but it it definitely bugs me. Um, Yeah. You know what? There's nothing I can do about that. I just, once I start talking and show them that, them that I'm prepared, that I'm serious and I'm passionate about what I do, that kind of goes away. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's definitely part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely hear you. Um, you mentioned too that uh, when you write, you are like kind of skipping around a bit and stuff when you're writing. That's one of the other things I wanted to ask you about um, because I know a lot of people will um, uh, come to a piece, like they'll start a piece and then they'll go may- away from it for a bit, maybe come back and they'll write it in chunks and um, stuff like that. And it, and it also depends on what kind of piece you're writing, you know, how long it is and um, uh, if, if you're cutting it into sections or not. Um, and I think that's interesting because uh, some people like myself, uh, unless it's uh, something that's really long or specifically in chunks, like a list or something, I tend to just sit down and just write it. Um, that's just the way I do it. So like I'll spend hours if it's long, you know, just sitting there and just writing. Um, and then I'm just kind of done and then I go back to it and I'll go over it again and stuff. But, um, but for, so for you, is it, is it like that or do you take extended time away from it and come back? And, um, like you said, you, you bounce around. So like, do you just think of, um, oh, this line would be great here. So I'm going to stick it here. And then you have a thought about another line. So you go back to another spot or how does that work? 
You know, I think it's a mix of everything. Um, I guess maybe I'll talk generally about what I usually do and then kind of what led me to the process with this story. But I guess usually I like to think in terms of categories. So say you interview Nate and you interview 15 other people that know Nate, you, you essentially have like a 50 to 60 page word document that is very scary and intimidating. And if you want to be good for the environment and save the trees, you don't want to print it out and have this huge mess in front of you, which is even more intimidating in real life. Mm -hmm. So I try to just, um, I try to make different categories. Like this stuff is about the height stuff, for example, or this stuff is about, um, therapy. This stuff is about not being serious. Once I have these little like sections, I kind of look at it like a puzzle. What would happen if I put that here? What if we started there? What if we go back here? I like play around and it's maddening. It's trial and error. I think the, the weird thing is people think that being a writer, you spend most of your time writing. The truth is I spend most of my time um, struggling mm -hmm. and organizing <laughs> and thinking. Thinking is the biggest thing that I do. And it may not look like you've done anything on the page, but the truth is you can spend four hours just thinking about what to do with this thing and how to make it flow. So I think, you know, I always end up stressing about not having enough time for writing because reporting takes up so much time, especially like me, if you interview 10 to 20 people per piece. But I think the organizing just takes so much time. And I think I'm not an outline kind of person. I don't like that. But I definitely, there's quotes within my categories that I, I put bold that I just know are important. And that helps kind of guide where I place them. But if I can find, one thing I've been trying to do is like find motifs to hang things on. Like in Lithuania, it was pee in a pod. Um, and, and we sort of made those connections um, to kind of repeat them. My editor, um, who's now our managing editor, Christina Tapper, taught me that. You kind of have an image and then you return to it. And so once I saw in the Nate piece that he started citing like children's um movies and things and books, I was like, that's my motif. And that really is the story in a nutshell, right? It's like the man child. How can I have that throughout the piece? So I needed every single section to have one of those metaphors. Um, I knew the Dr. Seuss one was the best of them all. Um, <laughs> and I think it would kind of illustrate the tension that I was trying to build throughout the piece. So I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm definitely ending with that quote. But I really struggled with the, um, the end scene because I had done this, like the meat of the story, the crux of the story, the heart of the story was the therapy. But I was like, you know, what is a story with this, this great need in the middle? And then it just trails off and ends really lame. And it just is a letdown from there. It's like every section has to build and be important, but I wasn't finding anything that would keep it there. Right. I thought, I thought the kids section that came after was important, but it needed to end on something. And Instead of trying to be serious, like I always do and end on a very serious thing, I thought, hey, we're profiling Nate Robinson. Show his personality. Like, what is funny? And I just, I started laughing. I, immediately, I was like, fisticuffs. The Venezuela thing has to be the end. Um, but, you know, I think with my process is like, usually with my stories, the lead always changes. What I turn in doesn't end up being the lead. I, I end up, Lithuania, I rewrote that story like four different versions, like full versions. I mean, it went through like wow. major surgery, huh. like ACL type stuff. So, <laughs> um, so I think, I think it's just always thinking and reorganizing and knowing that whatever you start with is probably not what you're going to end with, but just being flexible and open to the story changing. That's really awesome. I like hearing about people's processes and how they go about it. That's um, definitely one of the more extensive processes I've heard of uh, to this point, which makes sense um, yeah. <laughs> considering what you do. Um, but yeah, so uh, it's interesting. I wanted to point this out too. I have no idea what you'll think of this or not. And this is just sort of a random thing that I thought of. But as I was reading it, I almost felt like this is probably not intentional at all, um, but it almost feels like your article is kind of set up like um, like an Elizabethan sonnet in a way. Mm, where, I like that. Yeah, where like the opening octet is kind of like, you know, Nate Robinson's like his shenanigans and talking about his high octane personality and um and getting getting to know him and, and the concerns um that he of whether or not he could could change himself or go that route and that kind of stuff. And then when you have the the shift, the volta into the sestet, um 
there's it changes sort of to like you know stories of him learning to maybe channel himself a little better <clears throat> and figuring himself out a little more and going through all this stuff and and uh, the things he does with his kids and in Venezuela and then in like the sort of rhyming couplet conclusion there's um basically Nate Robinson kind of kind of deducing you know him to be himself almost in a way so I, I thought that was I thought that was interesting and uh just wanted to point that out because I thought that was really cool and I had no idea if you kind of meant to do that or not. I didn't, but I feel completely honored that you think <laughs> my work resembles anything like a sonnet. That's that's amazing. I appreciate that so much, um, just being an English uh, literary nerd as well. Um, but the person that I'm inspired by is Toni Morrison. I think her writing oh, yeah. is more experimental. And I think like when people read Toni Morrison, they're very confused. They're like, what time period are we in? Why did we just go back? What are we in a memory? Are we in here? And so, um, I will never be able to write like Toni Morrison, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to play with time and going back and forth and, um, just doing a lot with images. Like if you listen to her interviews, she'll, she'll talk about locating an image. Like, um, in one of her recent books, I forgot which one she, she got the idea because she saw this image of a horse standing up and it was so poignant to her. She was like, I have to do a lot with this image. And so what I'm working on right now is trying to find my images within the story that I know are really strong, like things that have potential for me to, um, write a couple sentences on them and not just have it be kind of like a fleeting thing. Like when Nate said that he visualizes people trying to hold his Jersey down, but he still goes up, but he still feels the weight. I was like, okay, how can we make that image pop? Um, so for me, it's just constant, a constant journey and trying to be better at the way that I describe things and make sure I'm hitting my moments. Yeah, that's another one of my favorite things about this kind of piece that, you know, you have more time to do things like that, um, which are way more, I just fun. That's one of the fun things about writing for me is, um, you know, once you get past um, figuring out, you know, the technical things maybe you have to do, you can sort of let yourself be a little more free flowing and kind of just, um, you know, just kind of let your hands do the writing or typing, I guess, and just kind of let it go and see what you can come up with. And then when you're told things like that, you got to get to, you get to like describe them. And it's, it, I find that stuff really fun and enjoyable. It is fun until it's hell, and it and you're like, why am I not doing this? Why does this, this metaphor suck? Um, so yeah, it is a process of hell, but you know, it is fun. Like I really like coming up with metaphors, and it's funny. Like a, a lot of times, you know, editors have told me, or just friends that I asked to read it, like you're doing too much. Like this is too much. You're trying to be too literary. You just stop. Like these these are basketball readers. Stop trying to do too much. But I do want to be a little flowery. I do want to get better at that <laughs> yeah i mean hey some basketball readers like it i, I like it so uh, okay, at least at go. least you have one person you can tell your friends that there's at least uh, one person who likes it all um, I need. <laughs> <laughs> um one of the things i always like to ask uh, any guests i have on my podcast because this, this always fascinates me is um if you have any writing quirks that while you're writing or um something you do as you're writing or before or after um it could be anything like Maybe you uh, need silence or maybe you're like me and you always need a glass of water beside you even if you're not drinking from it. Um, is there anything that you sort of do while you're writing that's just like a writing time thing? Yeah, I um, <laughs> I have to listen to music. I can't work in silence. I can't work in libraries. I can't work at home. I'm very specific on like location and vibe. Um, so I'm a coffee. I call myself like the coffee shop queen. Um, and there's so many <laughs> across LA County, like not just LA City. I travel pretty far to go to cool independent coffee shops, and I have to be in the right vibe because um, I like to. Because if I'm going to be isolated by myself, struggling with a story for like six hours, then I need to at least be around other humans so I don't completely go into the abyss. Um, so I do like go, being in a coffee shop and writing in a coffee shop. I get the same drink, iced vanilla latte, iced hazelnut, hazelnut iced coffee. If that makes me basic, I really don't care. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely have to have that. And um, yeah, I, I have different names for the different processes that I do. So like the first part is called sit and struggle which is just like sitting and struggling and thinking <laughs> and what is this going to be and how am I going to do this and trying to conceptualize. And then the next part when it's like, okay, let's write, I call it like make nice. I have to make these like gibberish words nice into like legible English. Um, and then the next thing is just get the words out, like just 
keep getting like volume and then, and I just work on it over and over and over again. But if I'm not in the exact location that I need to be with my drink and my music, it's a struggle. Yeah, that's uh, I like I like having the name names for pro- the parts of the processes. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, one of my favorite uh, quotes is from Neil Gaiman, who says that um, you know writing is just putting one word in front of the other until you're finished. It's that simple, but also that hard. Um, yeah, you know, it's just it's difficult. It's not easy. Um, there's a lot of staring out of windows for me personally. Um, there is nothing like that blank cursor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really, it's, it's intimidating. It's difficult. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's, I've heard people will, um, they'll copy text from something else and stick it on a document and it helps them start just to know that they have other text on the page. Well, for me, it's like, I'm, I have a little bit of Nate Robinson in me. Sometimes I get so hyped and like, I just want to go dunk on somebody. And it's just, I, I just like have all this excitement in me to write the story. And then I get there and I'm like, okay, why is this not working? Like, why is this yeah. not coming out? Like I have all this passion that I want to get onto the page and it's not working. So, um, it's definitely a process. Um, I, I do take comfort in knowing that other writers that I meet up with or talk to also go through this. So, you know, I don't think I've met somebody who ever writes stuff and is like, wow, that was great. I think like most of us are just always critiquing ourselves and, you know, there is a line between like unhealthy and healthy, but I think it's cool to talk to other writers and just see like, you know, everyone really struggles. It's, it's so hard and we're all trying to get better. Nobody is ever like has it all down, you know? Yeah. That writer life is, is something it's, it's good when you have that group that will tell you that, you know, you put out something that it was good. And then, um, there's also people, the helpful compliment, uh, that, uh, compliments are nice. And, uh, the criticism, um, from, uh, people that you trust is good. Um, I've learned to never read the comments, uh, yeah, don't. Most of the time, uh, yeah, just just avoid that. It must be, um, I'm sure, much worse for you than it is for me. But uh, even I've learned that. And uh, yeah, um, so I know you have to get going soon. Um, but I do have one more question for you before you leave. Okay. I just wanted to know uh, what you're reading at the moment in your downtime. That's maybe sports related, but maybe not at all. Um, somebody gave me this basketball book uh, that's edited. It has Lee Jenkins in there. It just came out. God, the name is like slipping me. Um, oh, this is the worst. It just came out. Um, it just came out. I can't remember it. But I'm also reading Salvaging the Bones by Jasmine Ward. Um, she's a really great storyteller. And I think um, a lot of what I read is actually non-sports. Um just because I feel like uh, there's a lot to be learned from the way fiction writers craft, like they craft the pace of their writing. Um, and she does a great job of that too. Like her metaphors are, are really great and she learns how to um, build up suspense in time. So that's a great book. That's awesome. Um, Miran, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, everybody can go check out your article on Bleacher Report and uh read it and uh hopefully you're getting a bunch of nice comments about it because you deserve it is there anything you want to plug before you go uh well thanks so much for having me first of all i appreciate that and thanks for reading the story um i guess just my website mirinfader.com and i'm on twitter at mirinfader as well awesome um so you'll be able to find this podcast the writers write podcast on bumpers.fm or the Bumpers app if you have it. You can also follow the pod on Twitter, at WritersWritePod, where links to the episodes will be posted and links to my guest articles. Uh, until then, you can follow me, at Hellvolution, on Twitter, and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic, sometimes B-Ball Breakdown, and Scene Creek. Thank you for listening.